everybody. How's it going? Welcome to Mark and the Tiger Tales. I'm Mark of the band Mark and the Tiger. <laughs> That's where we get the name. Fantastic. It is a beautiful... No, it's ugly. It's not. It's Well, it's beautiful, but it's raining in Los Angeles right now. It's Sunday. You're listening to this on Monday, I assume, because I know that you just love it and you want to hear it right away. Uh, and it's Grammy Sunday, too, which is very exciting. I, It's crazy, though, because I feel like I've definitely reached that point in my life where I know a lot of the people at the Grammys, but I don't know all of the people. And there are a lot of young people out there that, where do they come from? Where have they arrived from? How did they get there? What's going on? I don't know. But um, I want to be there. (laughs) How do I get there myself? It's very cool. And the reason I'm excited about the Grammys today, other than the fact that I'm a musician myself and, and I wish I was there and I'm manifesting that as we speak. But I am so excited that Heather McMahon is hosting for E! Entertainment for the red carpet. And if you don't know Heather McMahon, she is this incredible comedian. She got, like, I'll say pseudo-famous, infamous, let's say. She became infamous during the pandemic on Instagram, like many, many people these days. And she's a stand-up comedian. She has a podcast called... What the fuck's it called? It's called... Absolutely not. There we go. We got there. It's called Absolutely Not. Um, Philip got me onto it, my husband. And it's so funny. And it's amazing because now I've been listening to it for years. And it's been so cool because I was privy to all of her wins and losses and all of these things that have gone on in her career over the past few years and how much she has hustled and pushed herself and like championed herself. And now it's really starting to pay off. And it's so inspiring because, well, one, she and I are very similar ages and we're in very different but similar careers. And it is just a hustle thing. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I am so grateful that it's February because I just feel like January never got off the ground. <laughs> the new year came, but then it just wasn't here. I was ready to manifest. I was ready to hit the ground running, and 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 she didn't. She sat around and did nothing, and I, I couldn't even tell you what happened in the month of January. But now, February, we're here. Heather McMahon's inspiring us. We're going to manifest. I'm using the royal we, but I hope you also manifest. But I don't know. It's exciting. I keep thinking to myself that the I always remember, I remember that quote from Mulan. <laughs> this is a deep cut. Bear with me. So in Mulan, in the animated version, all the way back from like 2000 or 1999 or whatever the hell it was, and it's right after Mulan goes to see the matchmaker and she causes all that chaos and everyone is ashamed of her and, and thinks she's awful. And she's sitting in the garden and her dad comes out and doesn't say anything about what happened. He just sits down next to her and he he's like, oh, look how beautiful the cherry blossoms are. It's like the most beautiful they've ever been. And then he points at this unopened bud and he says, oh my gosh, this one's late. But you know what? It's going to be all the more beautiful because of the time it waited. And I've been holding on to that for a long time now. So Heather McMahon, you're inspiring me. And uh, I'm just going to keep that that in my mind. Anyway, great. Great I could share that with you guys. Welcome to the podcast today on Mark and the Tiger Tales. We have an amazing guest today. 
I met her through Liv, who you guys heard last week. I met her at um, Liv's wedding last year. Uh, her name is Lizzie Hay. Nope, that's not true at all. I'm combining. She has a pseudonym, too, and I'm, I just combine them. Her name is Lucy Hay. She's an author and a screenwriter, and she also goes by the name Lizzie Fry on some of her books, and that's why I confused her. Sorry, Lucy. Sorry about that. Uh, the first time that I ever met her, or we tried to do this interview, we ended up having to re-record it, and I called her Lucy Hale, who's an actress and not... Lucy Hay, who was the person that I was talking to. So (laughs) again, sorry, Lucy, I have it now for the most part. But Lucy is so wonderful and so smart, and I could just talk to her for so long. And in fact, I did talk to her for so long. I can't tell you guys how much time I had to spend cutting things out of this interview just to make it fit into the time constraint of this podcast that I have put on myself. Uh, and in addition to being a novelist, Lucy's also written screenplays. She's written books for writers, and she coaches writers for both novels and screenplays. And she is the brainchild behind, or no, the this thing, this blog, Bang to Write, is her brainchild, and she is the brains behind it. Um, which is just this incredible resource for writers and authors and, and screenwriters and anyone who wants to know what it takes to be a part of this writing business or be a part of the film industry or the publishing or book industry. You should go check out Bang to Write and you should really check out Lucy V. Hay. So I will say the story that she tells me today is incredible really really incredible and you can see why she's such a prolific writer herself because the way she tells the story is incredible it's a lot though it's pretty intense i'm gonna say trigger warning if anyone has um a history of like domestic violence or partners that you might still be triggered by it's uh it's a lot but it's a really amazing story, and I know you guys are going to like it. So I'm going to leave you here with Lucy now, and I'll see you at the end. Goodbye, guys. See you soon. Enjoy it. Okay, Lucy, tell me a story. Okay, wow, this is one's quite a personal one for me, so uh, so bear with me. I'm here. Yeah, so I was a young mum, and my son, he's a lovely boy in many ways. Yeah, he's very special to me, obviously. He's my firstborn, my, my little prince. And, yeah, I suppose, I suppose he was a tween before I realized that there was something wrong with him. And I didn't want to really kind of admit it to myself at the time. I was, uh, you know, I was in my early twenties. I didn't know a lot about parenting, you know, like a lot of parents, I had quite an isolated life. I'd come from a background that was not good. And so I knew instinctively that my baseline was a little bit skewed as a parent and I was at a disadvantage. And 
I saw all these red flags in him. And I suppose I didn't really want to admit it to myself. I just, you know, there were little things that kind of stick out to me now as I look back. And like when he was a toddler, you know, he would he would get bugs and he would crush them and stuff like that. And he seemed to take a lot of joy in doing that, which disturbed me. You know, I didn't like him using magnifying glass uh, glasses on ants and things like that, but. There was a part of me that thought, well, that's just something that boys do. And when he was about four, he, um, sorry, when he was about four, he basically found this cat and this cat was dying. And rather than being upset, he brings me this, this cat, this dying cat that's been run over, had this big smile on his face. And I was like, oh, my God, because you'd expect a normal child to pick up a, a dying animal. I mean, this animal is suffering horribly. I, mean, I didn't even have time to take it to the vet, you know, because its guts were all hanging out. And I ended up killing it myself. It was horrible. And he just wanted to talk about it all the time. And he had would have this big smile on his face all the time. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, are you a psychopath? But then I was I just kind of buried it inside me because I was like, Ugh. and I had so many other problems as well. The boy's father was abusive. He was not a decent guy. He used to beat me up, all that kind of crap. So I guess there was a part of me that blamed myself as well because I'd exposed him to so much violence in the home. So was it any is it any wonder then that he would start finding violence in other places and maybe even committing that violence himself? And I just didn't know what to do. I just had no idea what to do. I called up a couple of helplines, but, you know, there was there was nobody there that could really... I, and I was just so full of shame and so worried all the time and I don't think I explained myself properly and we're going back like 20 years now as well you know it was a different time because so much has changed since the advent of social media you know I wasn't I didn't know any other parents you know because I was such so young my boyfriend the boy's father was much older than I was you know and of course that's another red flag thinking about it and I suppose my my response was to just to freeze and just kind of not deal with it and pretend that my son was not what I thought he was, basically. And that was that there was something deeply wrong with him. And so I just kind of carried on with my life. I ignored various things. You know, his teachers started to call me in at school when he began school, saying that he was a bully, saying that he bit other children. And I remember saying to my mother, you know, I think there's something wrong with him. And she was, you know, classic boomer logic. Ah, oh, boys will be boys. It's, it's, no, it's, no, it's no big deal. And I couldn't get the help that I needed with his father. I didn't admit how bad it was to anyone because I couldn't admit it was bad to myself. And so I just let it continue. I let it continue. Meanwhile, my relationship with the father was breaking down very badly at this point. My son was about 
eight at this point. And I wanted him to leave. I thought if I can do nothing else, if I can get him out of the house, then maybe I still have enough time to kind of say to my son, you know, that just try and have a normal life with him, basically, and and maybe undo some of the damage that he saw in his formative years. Maybe I could do that. But of course, my boyfriend, he didn't want to go. And he had an awful lot of power in the relationship. He was the one that was working I was working, but I could only get part-time hours because, you know, our son was my son because apparently I had chosen to have him and he never wanted him in the first place and all this other kind of crap. Um, So I could only work part-time because he wouldn't even babysit his own kids and bullshit like that. Um, So it was very, very hard for me. I I had all the worst bits of being a single parent and all the worst bits of being with someone at the same time. And it was just horrible and he wouldn't leave he was so much bigger than me i'm so small and he was a friggin' giant um and i told him multiple times that i wanted him to go he wouldn't go he said well you go i'll keep the boy i'm like no absolutely not and you know because suddenly he's interested in looking after the son just as a kind of bargaining chip, you know, this is the kind of caliber of the guy that we were dealing with. And he was abusive. He used to beat me up and and pull my hair. One time he grabbed my hair and smashed my forehead into the door frame, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, it was a Sunday night and I'll never forget this night. And I can't even remember how the argument started. It was something really stupid, like, you know, he didn't want what I'd cook for dinner or he wanted to come upstairs with me. And I was like, no, you sleep downstairs now. That was the agreement. You know, something along those lines. Anyway, there was a massive row. He starts really kicking off. Uh, My son was upstairs and I could see him peeking over the banisters. And I really wanted my boyfriend, Dean, to stop yelling just for once. And then it would end. And then I suppose it's it's trauma or it's it's it was because he grabbed my head again and hit my head against the wall. Because there's like a gap, because I remember looking up at the up at the banisters, seeing my son peering down and and then suddenly my son's in the kitchen and it's like, you know, like magic. Uh, and I suppose it's the head injury or maybe it's just what happened next that was just so horrifying that I can't remember properly because you get gaps, don't you? Anyway, I remember looking at Dean across the kitchen and our eyes kind of locked and Jack was there and he was wearing a Star Wars onesie. I remember that detail so clearly. And there's a knife in Dean's chest about here. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, did I do that? And then I looked at Jack and I see that his hands have got blood all over them. And he's looking at his father with that big fucking smile that I remember him when he carries the the cat in with the guts hanging out. He's got that same smile on his face. 
looking at his father. And Dean's just like looking at his chest like that. And I remember the first, and he goes like this to pull it out. And I go, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. Because everybody knows you shouldn't pull the knife out. And, but of course, that kind of animal part of his brain is like, I've got to get it out. So he pulls it out and there's this horrible arc of red and it hits the wall and across the refrigerator. And of course, instant regret because of course blood starts pouring out and he kind of collapses on the kitchen tiles and he takes a chair with him and me as well somehow. I'm not even sure. Or maybe I knelt next to him. I can't really remember. And I'm trying to stop the blood from coming out of his chest and I said to Jack I said bring me my phone and Jack just looked at me and he said he hurt you mummy and I said yeah just bring me the phone bring me the phone but he just stands there and that's when I knew that there was not just something deeply wrong with my son but that maybe there was some evil in him So yeah, that's my that's my story. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing such an intensely personal story. Mm -hmm. I have to ask, where is Jack now? What's I mean, you said that was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Where is Jack now? Mm-hmm. He lives in this book. I knew it the whole time. And you know why, Lucy? Because I per turned the last page of that book last night. I just finished it. And the whole time I was like, oh, wow. It was a true story. And then I was like, wait, the same names. Oh, my goodness. You did that very well. Let me tell you. Thank I you. have to say. <laughs> I've been doing TikToks um, and I've been working with uh, a TikTok manager who said that you should present your your books as if they're your real life story on TikTok. And I thought, so when you, you sent me this brief, I thought, I wonder if I could do it for like longer than 30 seconds or a minute. I wonder if I could make people... You fucking did. You really fucking did. <laughs> oh my God. Can I tell you though, I'm so glad you did that because I, I truly did. I've been reading it for a little bit now, just as I go to sleep, the perfect bedtime reading. And I, <laughs> last night I was like, Oh, I'll just read a little bit more before the interview. And I, it was the last, I mean, you know, cause you obviously you wrote it. So the last like quarter of the book just does not stop. So I was like, Oh fuck. So I ended up staying until like 1am just finishing the book. <laughs> but I'm Yes, it's so good. And I'm so curious. So, okay. So if it's not true events, where did the inspiration for this story come from? Because I got to say too, when I read it, because I think you recommended it to me the last time we talked and I did not read the back of the blurb. So when, um, I won't give too much away, but when the events happened with Steve, I had no idea it was coming and I was so shocked. Where did that come from? Um, it's a good question, really. I mean, my inspiration always comes from real life. 
Mm. So, you know, there have been, um, you know, I have been through traumatic events in my life and have come from a background that's not fantastic. And I was a teenage mother and, uh, you know, I had various problems with my son when he's growing up. He's 25 now. and There's nothing wrong with him. Um, but, you know, we had the classic kind of teenage mum and on rebellion thing going on. He went off the rails for a short period. Um, so I got very interested in like things like parenting and uh, psychology and things like that. I actually did see someone get stabbed once, which mm. was not nice. They, he actually survived. He was really lucky. He got stabbed in the face. Oh my god! It went into the his like ocular cavity, so it missed his brain. Um, and but it was the, one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen in my life. It's just it was really bad. Um, so yeah, it's a combination of things. Also, things like my personal interests as well, like you know, from the Good Mother book that Dennis Nielsen is in there as well, and they have like the Camden Killer, and of course he was the Musgrave Hill Killer over here in London. Mm -hmm. So I like to really kind of mix my real life lived experiences with things that I'm personally interested in, like psychology, like serial killers, like parenting, things like that. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, 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 a, it's a mix really of real life and my personal interests and anything that kind of grabs my attention at any given moment, like um, uh, Natasha, the protagonist of The Good Mother, she works in an archive, um, you know, digitising footage and stuff like that. And I happens to be in an archive uh, the summer before COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was kind of going through it and it's just it was just like the archive in the book it was an absolute mess it's just like boxes and boxes of crap everywhere <laughs> and um, this old lady had basically gathered loads and loads of crap together in this case to do with sewing and hobbies uh but then I thought for for um the archive in the good mother um because i'm personally interested in film obviously from my my work as a script editor what if that old lady had been really really obsessed with film and she'd have like loads and loads of cans of film and all that kind of stuff and and she's got photographs of her and there's a photograph of her and uh, dennis nielsen the serial killer where did that come from that kind of thing because and i got that idea from when i went to the archive that was about sewing and hobbies and things like that i can't even remember how i ended up there i, think I was somebody, gonna ask you yeah i think somebody said it and it was really interesting i think i think it was something to do with a movie we were doing some research or some some um reconnaissance about you know for the filming uh or something like that anyway somebody recommended it to me for some reason pre-covid seems like a thousand years ago doesn't it right doesn't it it's just like a whole different time it really does. So I don't honestly remember exactly why I ended up there, but I do remember when I was at the archive that she had like loads of things that were really dangerous, like super <laughs> dangerous. In her sewing archive. No, well, they, she had loads and stuff to do with sewing because that was her like her special interest. But then she also had other hobby stuff as well that she had obviously inherited oh. or stuff and didn't know what to do with. You know, rich people are just weird, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> 
they have so much time. Yeah, they have so much time to fill <laughs> that they end up doing weird stuff. So she had like all this sewing stuff, and then she had like um, loads of like archery stuff, and she had some swords in there as well. Oh my <laughs> god! And, and like really dangerous stuff. She even had a bomb there as well and um and i remember the the archivist was like oh yeah by the way there's a bomb but don't worry it's been diffused that was like the first thing she said to me <laughs> oh good i'm so glad <laughs> oh thank you so much i appreciate that <laughs> oh, God. apparently every time anybody went in they'd come back going oh there's a bomb and she'd have to say each time it's been diffused don't worry about it <laughs> you know in my brain though i do think of england as just having a lot of unexploded bombs just scattered across all of it Mm. Well, there there are quite lots. Uh, just recently, in fact, about two or three years ago, there was a bomb that exploded just near Exeter University. I live in um, just outside Exeter, oh and there was an exploded bomb found in Exeter by the university. And um, before they could get to defuse it, it blew up. Luckily, its half life had gone way down. Right. But it, still caused, it still caused a major disruption for obvious reasons because everybody freaked the fuck out. Like, oh, <laughs> Seriously. Oh. You know? Um, and what was particularly interesting about that case was when I um, wrote a book. Where has it gone? Oh, when I wrote this book, mm. there it starts with a bomb like situation outside Exeter University. And this, I was literally just finishing this book as some as a bomb exploded outside Exeter University. I was like, "Whoa!" Oh my <laughs> I can, gosh! I, I can um, create things with my mind. <laughs> that was listen. Weird. Don't knock that. I, I believe in that for sure. Now, I have to ask you that how much of, especially now that you've told that story so <laughs> well, how much of yourself have you put into Natasha? Um, probably not as much as people assume. I mean, she's very kind of a bombastic kind of character, and I am. And she's a young mum, and I was, you know. But that's pretty much where we kind of veer off. Because mm. I credit being a young mum as actually softening me and actually making me realise that it's not just about me. Because, um, you know, growing up in the environment that I did, you know, we were, it's, you know, long story short, we were just not, I was just not a nice person. Let's just say that. Uh, because I'd grown up in a very harsh environment and I could have grown up to be a very harsh um, uh, adult. But because I was a young parent, because I knew it wasn't just about me and that I had to try and do my best by my son, that actually not only softened me, it made me think about things from different ways of looking at the world, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas she's gone way the other way. She is who I would have been because mm -hmm. a lot of young parents are let down so badly by the system and, you know, just generally just treated a 
abysmally. I mean, the right wingers treat us like crap, saying that we're all stupid sluts and our kids are destined for jail. And, you know, we, we should have had abortions. But by the way, we don't believe in abortions either. You know, you should just die, basically, because everybody <laughs> should just die. And then um, but even the left, even the progressives, you know, they infantize young parents. They're really shitty towards them. I mean, the number of times I went to like feminist societies at university or whatever and heard them going on about young parents and how we should we're a drain on society and we are trying to opt out and and trying to take what isn't rightfully ours and all this other kind of crap so the left and right hates us and so as a result you just can't get help from anywhere it's a nightmare mm. I, mean, I have a lot of friends who are young parents and i don't know a single duffer amongst them you know they've all high achievers they've all worked really hard they've all had to deal with amazing hardship you know, really bad. And they've kind of come out the other side from that. They've got their own businesses. They've retrained as solicitors, as lawyers, as uh, social workers, hairdressers, teachers, you name it. You know, they've gone out of their way. But crucially, hardly anyone has helped them do that. We've had to, uh, to do it by ourselves. It's really, really harsh. I think what you just said is so um, important because it's a good reminder that, you know, your circumstances may shape you, but they don't define you. No one is set into a certain box based on what has happened to them in their life. Mm, I mean, and also it's really important to remember that the vast majority of um, teenage parents, the father is over 25. Mm, that is gross yeah. and so crazy in some ways. I mean, it is patriarchy in action because these men impregnate these young girls, walk away, get no blowback whatsoever. Mm. People don't even realize what they've done. Um, another thing that people don't realize about teenage parents is the vast majority of us come from backgrounds that are very deeply dysfunctional in yeah. some way. You know, there's sexual abuse in the house. There's domestic violence in the house. Um, queerness can also be part of it as well, because I know I wanted to prove how unqueer I was by sleeping mm -hmm. with as many boys as possible um, to show that I wasn't a lesbian. Um, because, of course, in the 90s, bisexuality just wasn't a thing. You know, you were either gay Sometimes, even gay. still today, it's not a thing, depending exactly. on who you go around and talk to. Exactly. So, you know, I wanted to prove that I wasn't queer, so I slept with loads of boys, you know, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. It's, and it's usually an expression you know, when a girl gets pregnant, you know, sometimes, yes, they get drunk and they don't use a condom. Oops. You know, you know, that does happen. Obviously, it does. I'm not saying it doesn't. But for a significant contingent, it's actually a cry for help for something else. And people just haven't got a clue about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think people don't necessarily want to look at it. I mean, you mentioned those people who are like, oh, well, you're not like those other ones and it's yeah. this weird thing you know people tend to i don't think they realize often how insulting they're being by taking you out of you know this group that you're a part of in some ways people mm -hmm. they've decided what is right and appropriate and if they like you they'll be like well don't worry you don't fit into that box of people that we don't like but you know if they don't then Lumped right in there it's, it's so normal as well to kind of hate on people uh like mm -hmm. that without even thinking you know i mean a friend of mine who knows my story <laughs> she literally knew my story she knew that i was a teenage mother we met for coffee and she goes oh my daughter's pregnant i can't believe it her life is over i was like seriously 
<laughs> You're telling this to me. <laughs> it was like, come on, what are you doing? All we have to do is support her and she will do exactly what she was going to do. You know, stop whining. <laughs> Basically, just stop. <laughs> I mean, you know, she, she loves her daughter. And yes, it's inconvenient if your child has a baby and you don't want to be a grandparent. And my friend was only 39 and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not going to affect her daughter unless she lets it affect her daughter. You know, her daughter at this point was 19. It's not like she was 13. You know, if, if my 13-year-old daughter was pregnant, I would be concerned, obviously, because pregnancy is very harsh on the body, and I would also want to know who the hell the father was so I could... <laughs> Seriously. You know, if it's another 13-year-old, okay. If it's, you know, of a 16 or, you know, a boy who's 16 or above or something like that, then then yeah, I'm I'm after him, <laughs> you know, because you don't impregnate a 13-year-old. No. And so if it's an adult, you know, that's obviously a massive concern because of grooming and uh, and paedophilia and all that kind of stuff. So obviously I would be concerned for those reasons and for health reasons. Um, but at the end of the day, if you support your child in whatever they do, even if it's something that you don't really agree with or understand, if you support them, then you will be part of their life. You will make their life easier. And and why wouldn't you want to do that for your kid? I don't get it. What's what's the big deal? When you're telling these stories, you must have so much information that you can't necessarily get onto the page in any given moment. How do you do that where you can, you know, build these worlds and fill it with information, but in a way that is still very concrete and, um, you know, without expanding too much? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I'm a plotter, so mm -hmm. I like to plan in advance. A lot of writers go, oh, I can't do that. It kills my spontaneity, but it actually feeds my spontaneity. Mm. You know, to actually, I think of the, the outline as being the first draft. That's the place where I try various things out, see if I'm going down rabbit holes, seeing if they're going down into cul-de-sacs that are boring or things aren't working out. You know, I can try all of that out before I even start writing. And so I spend probably more time on the outline than I do on the actual drafting process because I've done so much work on the concept, the outline, and also what I call the mother doc of my research. So in other words... The good mother doc? <laughs> just the mother doc as in the mother doc. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I put like loads and loads of information in the mother doc about the things that I think I'm going to need. Like I've just finished a fantasy um, novel uh, that I'll be sending out on submission soon. And I thought I was going to use some biblical allusions in it. And so I, I, I read a bit of the Bible, not recommended, zero stars. <laughs> um, but I read a bit of the Bible. I thought it was going to be relevant, put my findings in the mother doc, didn't touch that bit, actually, mm. in the process, didn't need it at all. But if I hadn't got the mother doc, if I hadn't done the outline, during the draft, I would have thought I needed that stuff and I would have written it into the draft and I would have become attached to it. I would have become, you know, 
thinking, oh, can I can I do without it? Can I not do without it? All of these kind of problems, these issues, these anxieties. Um, uh, whereas I was able to just kind of circumvent that altogether because I did my research, I did my plan, and I did my mother doc. Um, and then as I was writing, I was like, oh, better use some Bible stuff. And then I was like, actually, I don't think I need it. And so I was just mm. straight, straight over it. So it's done. How so much time do you spend on the research part of things? Because I like there were a lot of things in The Good Mother that I was like, oh, she's either a true crime buff or she's just really done her research. It's a bit of both, really. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I love research. I'm all. I'm, in fact, I would rather research than write. Really? <laughs> my, my, oh God, I hate writing. Shit! I'm a professional <laughs> who hates writing, and it's not an unusual thing. You know, there was that guy who said. Um, uh, Writing is a thing that's more difficult for writers than any other, I think was the phrase. <laughs> it's like, that's, how I, that's how I feel about writing. Doris Lessing said, I hate writing. I love having written. That's how I feel mm. about writing as well. So, you know, I'm not in it for the writing. I'm in it for the for the research. So as a result, I have to kind of put uh, limitations on myself about how much research I'm allowed to do. Um, I try and do 10% of how long my, it's going to take me to write the draft basically. Oh, wow. um, so I can usually, I can usually write a first draft in about a hundred hours. So wow. that means I'm I'm not a. That's now. I mean, this is because of practice. I mean, my very first novel took a lot longer than that. Yeah. Uh, so many now. I can do it in about a hundred hours. That's a first draft, and then I try and do my edits all within about another fifty hours. So the whole book is a hundred and fifty hours. Sometimes I take a bit longer. Sometimes I take a bit shorter. The Good Mother actually took hardly any time at all, uh, really? which was. Really interesting, yeah, because the, the publisher had no notes, no no major ones. I didn't have to do a major development until edit or anything like that. And um, I wrote this one during <coughs> lockdown one, and the wheels really came off on lockdown one. I, I suffered from mental <laughs> I've got bipolar, and during lockdown one, I was super triggered, and I went a little bit, uh, mm. um, and so the only thing I could do that made me feel better was write. So my husband said, "Just go and write. I'll look after the kids. Go and write." And so I was just like steam coming out of my ears, um, and it was one of those weird kind of scenarios in which all the things that I was thinking, just all the ducks lined up in a row, to such a degree that everybody really liked it. Nobody had any notes, and it was bought and published very quickly it was like whoa did not expect That's... that um but yeah it's so it was a bit of both for the good mother because i am obsessed with true crime i read true crime books almost constantly i've read this fantastic one that you might like called cults uncovered oh my god i cults are my favorite that is my absolute yeah. bread and butter right That's there i'll have to read that Emily Thompson. Weird. And what I, what I particularly like about this one is um, she's done diverse cults, cults from all around the world, from every culture. Which is oh, I love that because you only yeah. ever hear about these like cis white men who have gathered exactly. these people together. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. Exactly. And like some cults have actually um, done some really good things for the world. Like there's mm. this one cult, I can't remember the name of it, but they basically invented um, rehab facilities for drugs and alcohol, basically. And I heard so about that, one. Yeah. Cyanide. Yeah. Is that in there? 
Pinon, that's that, it. Yeah, that was up north. And, that's right. Yeah, and basically they invented rehab facilities, which is good, obviously, but then, of course, they used those rehab facilities to brainwash people, which is obviously bad. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, and apparently whenever you set up a rehab facility now, according to this book, you have to sign a waiver saying you will not do what Sinon did. Wow, that is amazing. How fascinating. Um, yeah. I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but I do want to talk quickly about storytelling because obviously you're such a prolific writer and you've done, you've written so many things. And I have now evidence that you can tell stories really beautifully in person. How much of your real life do you think uses storytelling as a, as a means of you know, moving through. Oh, all the time, almost yeah. constantly. I mean, uh, I think as well as being a storyteller, I'm also a teacher. Uh, mm. So I kind of weave storytelling into teaching and back again all the time. I mean, my kids often say to me at weekends, don't teach me anything today. <laughs> no, I won't. I refuse to be educated today, mother. You know, and that means, therefore, I'm... You, I'm often told I can't tell stories either because I can't kind of, you know, stay away from telling stories. You know, sometimes I tell fibs to get mm. a point across. You know, I'll say, oh, my friend said blah de blah but actually I'm repackaging uh, concepts uh, that I've read about as a story so that I can persuade someone to do something or not do something or to think something a certain way so I think teaching and storytelling for me are just like melded together so I'm never lying I'm always telling the emotional truth but sometimes I will dress it up as something that happened to me that actually happened to my friend or you know just for impact because I'm such a big fan of uh dr dramatic satisfaction and people mm -hmm. always uh, something that you told them that happened to them and not, oh, my friend said this happened to their friend, you know, and that kind of element of being one step removed. So I, I never, ever lie, but I sometimes embellish um, uh, just to make a point or for drama or for impact. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I do the exact same thing. And you're right, because when you're trying to get a point across, it's, it doesn't make any difference if it's like, it, like, it will ruin the impact if you're like, well, I heard, I read this one article about this one guy. If you can just cut to the point and be like, I heard this, blah, blah, blah. It's going to make it so much more impactful. Mm. Oh, yeah. totally. Impact is everything. And, you know, we say drama is conflict, don't we? And that basically means, you know, drama, what is that? It's, it's struggle it's um you know the minutiae of life it's situations it's dilemmas it's problems all of that kind of stuff and then that's how and conflict is how it's played out you know um and we always want conflicts in our stories you know we want somebody to be up against it you know the odds are against them for some reason we want to be able to root for them so that means that things have to go wrong for them as well um so with that in mind it's always a good idea to think about the you know what that character or or and if you're the main character yourself in your story for example you know what did you have to get through you know nobody's interested in you saying i woke up this morning I decided I was going to have a fantastic day and then I had a fantastic day. That's it. 
You know, nobody's interested in that. No. You know, if you wake up <laughs> in the morning and go, I had the most appalling night's sleep. And then when I woke up, I discovered that uh, water was coming in through from the from the uh from the roof how typical is that and then i was walking downstairs and the cat nearly killed me because i fell over the cat and i nearly fell down the stairs and then uh, i answered the door got the um the uh post from the postman and before i've i've forgotten i had my boobs out oh no (laughs) (laughs) that's the kind of story that people remember not i woke up in a good mood I had a great day, then I went to sleep. Nobody's interested in that. No. <laughs> we want the drama. <laughs> oh, it's the truth. It's 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 the truth. And I again I, I'm grateful to hear you say that you do that as well. Cause I, I think it is important and you can teach people so much more when you can give them an actual, you know, true life scenario Absolutely. like that. Yeah. Uh, Lucy, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me and rescheduling this. And I I so appreciate it. I just love talking to you. (laughs) Yeah, well, I love talking to you. It's great. She got me. She fucking got me. Oh my god. I really want to know. You guys have to email me and tell me how many of you were listening to that story and then when she fucking revealed that it was just the plot to her book like screamed in your car i just need to know because let me tell you i had been reading that book the good mother in preparation for this interview because i really wanted to to you know have i i knew about lucy's work but i wanted to have it in my body before i talked to her and it was so engrossing and to the point where i stayed up until like 1 1 30 the night before because I had to finish it because it was so gripping and I just could not put the pages down. And then I had just come off of finishing that book, you know, and, and I went into this interview and I, I remember thinking, Oh, Lucy seems like a bit down today. What's going on? And then she goes into this story (laughs) and I'm just trying to like, listen and be a good, you know, sounding board as she tells me the story but inside i'm screaming and i'm like oh my god was this like is this her life i had no idea and then i was like wait a second would she have actually used her son's real name in the book if that was what her son's name was and then i was like oh wait is that really her ex-husband and (laughs) and the whole time she was telling the story i was trying to pick up clues (laughs) Of is this real or is she just telling me the story? And I, when she finally revealed it, I was like, I fucking knew, I fucking knew. But I am so sorry for anyone that I uh, tricked with that little trigger warning in the beginning. I'm so sorry if you were triggered, and then um, and then the whole thing was a lie. I apologize. Please, please don't hate me. Or if you do, go take it out someplace else uh anyway but if you should honestly go read the good mother it was so thrilling and just one of those books where you could you read it so fast because you just pick it up and then you just want it to you want to know everything so but i love talking to lucy so much i know i mentioned it at the beginning 
of the podcast, but I cut out so much of this interview because I, I don't want you guys to have to sit and listen for hours and hours and hours. But the video of the entire hour-long conversation exists, and we talk about so much more. We go more into cults. We go more into all the things. I'm thinking that I might put together a Patreon so if anyone is interested in supporting the podcast and my life and wants to hear the full interviews, then you'll have access to the completely unedited Zoom recordings uh, on the Patreon. I have not put, to, put it together yet, but if you want that, let me know and we'll go from there. I think that's it for me today. If you want to find out more about Lucy and read some of her books, which you 100% should, then, well, I mean, honestly, just an easy, quick Google of Lucy V. Hay or Lizzie Fry will get you out to all of her things. Or you can go to lucyvhayauthor.com. That's her website with all of her links, uh, her blog, Bang to Write. It has tons of information if you're a writer yourself and, and you want to take take it to the next level. And I I highly suggest it. I do want to quickly say happy Black History Month. I meant to say that at the beginning of the podcast and I and I totally didn't, so I'm so sorry. Happy Black History Month. I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> I don't have any black interviews <laughs> in the month of February. I do have some lined up for the future, but I didn't get my shit together in time to have them for February. I wish that I had done that. I wish that back when I was starting this podcast, I had planned that I was going to release everything in February for Black History Month. But fuck, if I don't have, if I can't get my shit together, and I'm so sorry. So next year, I will be, who knows? But I'm going to do my best, and that's all you can ask of me. I'm so sorry. I started this podcast, and I was really kind of hoping and planning that it would be from, like, the Elizabeth Day, How to Fail kind of podcast, where she's so elegant and poised and articulate and just... Like, it's it just feels so safe with her and her podcast. But I 100% am coming a lot farther from, like, the My Favorite Murder, Heather McMahon school of podcasting, which is, I hope, great, but just chaotic in the best way. I hope it's in the best way. <laughs> I hope. Anyway, if you would like to tell me your stories, I really want to hear them. So please email them to tigertailspod at gmail.com. I'm just realizing as I'm telling you this that I have not checked that in, well, since the last episode went up. So if you did already email, I'm so sorry. I will get to it immediately. Again, professional is a loose word. But I want to hear your stories. I would love to read them on here. And we'll go from there. In the meantime, I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. There are so many incredible stories waiting to be told. And I can't wait to fucking hear him. I love you guys. Goodbye. If you enjoyed this episode of Tiger Talks and you would like to hear more amazing stories from more incredible people, well, then you better leave us a review and hit that subscribe button right now. Tell your friends about it. And we will bring you more stories until you cannot handle anymore. I love you, Tigers. Goodbye. Goodbye.